Oh my gosh, I remember. Do you remember? So many of you do. Some of you fell in love to that song. That was probably some of y'all's song. Uh, 1986, the, uh, the title, the song from Mannequin, uh, Kim Cattrall's Breakthrough. Uh, she went on to be in other TV shows we will not mention here. Uh, 1986, Mannequin about a uh, down-on-his-luck department store worker who falls in love with a mannequin who just happens to come alive, and they get married, I think. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but the thing about that song, sung by Starship, formerly Jefferson Starship, formerly Jefferson Airplane, uh, the, the thing about that song that, that strikes me is the overarching transcendent tone of it. They can't, nothing's going to stop us now. I found you and you and me. Just like Sonny and Cher said, you know, I, I got you, babe. Like you and me together, nothing can stop us. Nothing can slow us down. And if the world runs out of lovers, we'll still have each other. I love that. I, I love the, the overarching, like, like just almost melodramatic uh, discussion of love in that, in that way. This notion that, that we're a part of something, you and me. Just the two of us, in love with each other, we are a part of something that is bigger than the entire world. We're a part of something that, dare I say, is going to change the world. And the interesting thing is, I, I think, you know, and this kind of a silly song, it's driven with this, like, this bass line, right, this bum, 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 you know, and, and, and it's, and these, like, inspiring synth notes and, and everything, it's, it's driven by that. But I think that honestly what made it sell was the fact that it was tapping into something that you and I and probably every other person that's ever existed uh, thinks about. And that is that, um, is that we long to be a part of something that's going to stand beyond us. We long for a home that we've never known. We long for a love that we have yet to experience. You know, think about it. People talk about love and they say like, well, I'll know it when I see it. We want to have achievements that are going to be these seminal things that, that outlive us and that we are remembered for. In short, we have a desire for transcendence. Little kids playing in the woods are, are with, with sticks as guns are not just hunting. They're fighting world wars. You know, little girls playing with dolls are not just are not just, they're not just playing with dolls, they're enacting a sense of home. I mean, these things are written into our DNA. We want to be a part of something big. And for some of us, like me, we want to change the world. I, I feel like I've always wanted to change the world. Um, I remember being, uh, graduating from college, I went to a small college uh, in Kentucky called Center College. Small, private, expensive, uppity. Um, and, uh, and at the end of our time in college, the president of the college, John Roush, would have every graduating senior over to his house. He had us in like groups of, you know, eight to ten, and he would have us over, and he would kind of talk about, you know, this has been your experience in college, now you're going out, and, um, and, and it was also a thinly veiled pitch for, uh, you need to give back to the university, you need to give back to the college and, uh, and do that, because good people do that. 
Um, but on the way out the door, he would make us all line up, and he and his wife Susie would stand there and shake our hands and ask us what we were going to do with our lives um, after this. And, you know, people would say, well, I'm going to get my MBA, or I'm going to take a gap year, or I'm going to law school, or I'm going to be a teacher, or whatever. And it, and it got to me, and, and I had known him. I played soccer in college, and, and he, he knew my name. I also played music, and one time he encouraged me to drop out of college um, and pursue that, which would have been terrible advice to follow. Um, but uh, he, uh, he, he said to me, he said, oh, and Cliff, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm, I'm going on Young Life staff in Virginia, and I'm going to change the world. And he goes, <laughs> Susie, come here, Susie, come here, you got to hear this. Cliff, say it again, what are you going to do with your life? He said, I'm, I'm going to change the world. And he said, oh, <laughs> that's, that's good, yes, do that, yes. I think I, I definitely caught him off guard with that. I, I think, and, you know, I'd like to think that he was proud of me. Um, but the thing is that uh, I walked out the door, and it was all my, that was my intention was to change the world. Um, that's what I wanted to do with my life, and that's what I, I kind of set out to do. Uh, the hard thing is, is that I've set out to change the world. I've been frustrated every single time. Um, uh, a lot of the things that we do, whether it's starting a family, not that my family is a frustration to me, whether it's, you know, starting a family, starting a job, uh, taking a risk, starting your own business, um, adopting, fostering, the things that we do that we feel like, yes, this is going to be my redemptive thing. This is going to be the thing that I put my hands to in the world that's going to that's gonna change the world, or at least is going to change my part of the world, often ends up being the key battlegrounds where we fight <coughs> and where we also realize that we were made for more than this world has to offer. We, it's this crazy thing that God did to us by placing eternity inside of our hearts, um, this desire for transcendence, this desire to be part of something more um, that is a remnant of what we had before the fall of mankind. And I get to start uh, Christ Point's series on the book of Nehemiah, um, and, uh, and as we enter into the book of Nehemiah, uh, that's kind of where I wanted to jump in was our desire for transcendence that God has hidden in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, For I've, you have hidden eternity in the hearts of man. And these things are designed, these desires, these passions are designed to lead us to him, to put them in our hearts. And yet, as you'll discover by the end of Nehemiah, um, that, uh, that even the, the good things that we set out to do aren't enough. And they will leave us. They will leave us with a sense of lack and a sense of coming up short. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Um, your word is light. It is food. It is good. It is true. It is. It is breathed out by you and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Um, Jesus, please speak through your word today. Um, May the, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of, of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, so I, I do, I work for Young Life. Uh, if you can't tell by the name, we work with young people, uh, and we talk about life. Um, I've got a bunch of my friends and heroes from Young Life are here today. You wave, friends and heroes from Young Life, there we go. Um, those, uh, a bunch of our leaders, we just kind of put it on our group text, like, hey, I'm preaching at Christ Point, is anybody going to come? So they came. Um, but really cool, we've got leaders from Young Life in Mount Pleasant, and in, from Gastonia, and from 
Mecklenburg. We got leaders from Butler and J.M. Robinson and um, and uh, and North Mac and Mallard Creek and uh, and A.L. Brown here uh, this morning. They're awesome. Um, also with them is a person who's way more a hero of mine than they are. Is my wife Laura. Hey, babe. Um, good to see you. Uh, so Laura's here. Our kids are in the nursery, Asher, Keller, and Pryor. Keller is seven, Asher's five, and Pryor is our daughter, and she's two. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's always interesting as I think about, you know, Laura and I look at our kids and we think, gosh, our love create, made these. Um, and I always kind of wince and think, like, I'm going to have to tell them that uh, Laura is not actually the first woman that I ever had feelings for. Crazy. Um, I know. Uh, gasp. Uh, actually, her name was Carrie Clement. Uh, we were four years old in the nursery at Trinity Church. Uh, also in that nursery, Jessica, Jessica Carter in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, her name was Carrie Clement. My best bud, Andrew McKinney, and I both knew that we wanted to marry Carrie Clement. Uh, when you know, you know, you know. And, uh, and we knew, but we knew this. We knew we couldn't both be married to Carrie Clement. And so we devised a scheme, a game, uh, to, to determine who was going to marry Carrie Clement. And so we said, we're going to go. Andrew and I said, we're going to go to Carrie and we're going to say, hey, we want to play your favorite game, family. And you get to assign the roles. And we knew that whoever she picked to be the dad was going to marry Carrie Clement. And I was the dog. Uh, not to be deterred, though, kindergarten was coming. Kindergarten, bus 144 comes to the end of my driveway. My bus driver, Joyce, opens the door. I get on with my socks pulled high, holding a box of Kleenex in my backpack. It was too big for me. And I, I get on the bus, and I walk towards the back, and, uh, and I see a seat next to a girl, and I sit down with her. And I have a box of Kleenex, and she had a box of Kleenex. And, and I sat down, and I said, hey, I'm Cliff. And she said, my name is Nazanin Homerfar. Whew. She was from Iran. We were both in Miss Southard's kindergarten class, and I tell you, I ran into those dark brown eyes all year long. It was a joke. Thank you for laughing, both of you. Uh, uh, she invited me to her birthday party. I returned the favor by inviting her to mine at Skateland, USA. Her mom recorded uh, the video on something that looked like a bazooka on her shoulder. I think it was Betamax, which uh, if you invested in Betamax, I'm sorry. I know my family did. Uh, we, uh, the, the lights went down, the disco ball dropped, and possibly that very song played, and we skated and held hands in a circle. It didn't last. First grade, Rachel Chase also rode bus 144. She was about a foot taller than me. She had long, straight bangs, which, according to my wife, were never in style um, uh, in, in the, the 80s, early 90s. Um, she, uh, she was great. She invited me over her house to play from time to time. Um, she didn't have a lot of great toys, but she did have a Barbie Jeep Wrangler, which was Barbie's, but it was also a Jeep Wrangler, so that was cool. In second grade, an older woman stepped into my life. She was sparkling. She wore denim rompers um, and, and different colored turtlenecks, and her name was Miss Gilbert. Third grade, Kaylin Rogers was kind of a tomboy. We played soccer together on the playground, um, which was really cool. Um, at fourth grade, you know, sometimes it's feast, sometimes it's famine. Fourth grade was a year of feasting. At Mr. Stallard's fourth grade Christmas party, uh, we, uh, we were having the Christmas party, and across, from across the room, Katie Skeen, the cute blonde soccer player, walked across and dropped a note on my desk. <laughs> I opened it up. My hands were shaking. My palms were sweaty. Knees weak, arms were heavy. And 
I, I opened it up and I read and the words flowed like poetry off the sheet. It said, Cliff, will you be my boyfriend? Check yes, no, or maybe. I didn't know what to do. My buddy beside me, Cole Bailey, he had a girlfriend and they went to the movies together, which was crazy. Parents, what are you thinking? Fourth grade, uh, they went to the movies together. And I didn't know what to do. Cole was like, will you check yes, man? I was like, I can't. I'm so nervous. He's like, I'll check yes. So he checked yes. I was like, yes, I checked yes. He was like, well, yeah, I checked yes. Well, fine. I was like, but now what do we do? He's like, you got to take it back to her. I can't take it back to her. I'd have to talk to her. So he was like, fine, I'll take it back. So we sort of folded it back up. She had made it into an origami. We kind of made it more into a ball. And he took it back, and he gave it to her. And she opened it up, and I saw her read, and her eyes come alight. And she read, yes, I will be your boyfriend she sort of waved back, and I waved, and I was like, yes, I did it. However, Mr. Stallard's fourth grade Valentine's Day party, I'm opening up Valentine's, and I get a Valentine from Renee Haynes, the cute brunette gymnast in our class, and it said, Cliff, will you be my boyfriend? Check yes, no, or maybe. And Cole wasn't around this time, and I had checked yes once before, and that seemed to make everybody happy. So I just checked yes again and gave it back to her, and she was really excited and turned to the girl next to her, who was Katie Skeen, and said, look. Cliff checked yes on mine too. And then I had some explaining to do. And, you know, it did. It went on like that for, for really, honestly, until I met Laura. Uh, the stories get less cute and more heartbreaking as the time goes. Um, but I don't know if you're like me where it seems like uh, I was searching for relationship. I was searching for love. I was searching for something that would last since before anyone could tell me that that's what I was supposed to be looking for. It's like I got caught in this game of tag, and somebody tagged me in before my feet even hit the ground. The crazy thing is usually we don't look that hard for something unless we've lost it. Usually we don't look that hard for something unless we've lost it. And so for you, what the thing is that you're chasing, the transcendence, the, the relationship, the love, the achievement, whatever it is, usually we don't look that hard for something unless we've lost it. And the reason that I start with this is here's a freebie. My young life people know when I say, here's a freebie, and we throw it, you, you catch it. So here's a freebie. There you go. When you read the Bible, you need to know that the people in the Bible were just like you and me. Nehemiah. I'm kidding. That's not how you say it. Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah was once a little boy. And he had parents, and he grew up, and he wanted to be something when he grew up. The people in the Bible had dreams. They had ambitions. I mean, can you ever imagine how Mary's life took a hard turn, uh, probably away from what she ever thought when Gabriel showed up one day? Like, she wasn't just sitting around and having this notion because she had read the New Testament before that she was going to give birth out of wedlock to the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. These people went through stuff. They had dreams. They had ambitions. They got hungry. They sweated. They wanted physical intimacy, most likely. You know? Like in the book of James, it says Elijah, he was, though he was a prophet, he was a man with a nature just like us. When you read the Bible, you have to be saying to yourself, these people were like me. They were like you. They didn't, they're not from like some foreign planet where they have where they, they didn't have dreams and desires. Nehemiah had dreams and desires. He had things that he wanted to do. He had things that he was passionate about, just like you. Uh, oh, look at that. Nehemiah ends up rebuilding and restoring, but 
I think as we'll find out, that's not exactly what he set out to do. It's not exactly what he wanted. A couple of fun facts about the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, I mentioned it together because it was originally written as one account. In modern Bibles, it's separated into two books, but it's one narrative written by a single author that used to be a unified account uh, that we just split up with chapters and verses uh, later on. It follows, uh, it happens 50 years, uh, it it happens 50 years about after uh, Nebuchadnezzar sacks Jerusalem. Um, Nebuchadnezzar just absolutely leveled it, tore down the temple, tore down the walls, burned the houses, and led basically the upper part of society um, into exile. This was kind of the Persian Empire's way of, um, of destroying not just your buildings and your, uh, your history, but also destroying your future as a people. We're going to take you out of your land, and we're going to bring you to our capital, where you're going to intermarry, and you're going to mix, and you're going to stop being you, and you're going to start being us. This was, uh, this was what they were doing with, um, with exile. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah picks up uh, with the fulfillment from prophecies of Jeremiah saying that exile is not going to be the end of the story. This should obviously awaken in us all sorts of hopes um, as we look at our own lives, as we kind of bring Ezra and Nehemiah into the present. Ezra and Nehemiah focuses on three main characters. The first is, say it with me, Zerubbabel. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. Zerubbabel? There you go. Zer- Zerubbabel uh, is commissioned to rebuild the temple. Uh, Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, has it laid on his heart to build a house for God in Jerusalem, and he sends Zerubbabel back to Jerusalem to build the temple. This is the first wave, and Zerubbabel brings a bunch of exiles from Susa, the capital of Persia, back to, uh, back to Jerusalem. The second person is Ezra. Say Ezra. There we go. Ezra is a Torah scholar, and he is sent once kind of the, uh, the temple of Zerubbabel is, is well underway. It's not finished until the Herods uh, kind of come onto the scene a couple of hundred years later, but it's made recognizable by Zerubbabel. Um, say that with me. There you go. Then Ezra is commissioned, he's a Torah scholar, to go back and kind of reinstitute a sense of community by Artaxerxes, who's the same Artaxerxes that speaks to Nehemiah, um, to go back and rebuild community and to teach Torah and to sort of reestablish uh, the religion of Jerusalem. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of important to, to wrap your minds around this, that, that for the people of this day, uh, they thought of gods as being regional deities. The entire exile experience was for the people of Jerusalem, not just their punishment for, uh, for breaking covenant with God as he said that he was going to do. The exile wasn't just God kind of capriciously saying, you know what, I'm going to take all of my people and utterly flatten the people that I've established for my name. It was God saying, you know what, no, the people that I've established for my name are not living by my name. Like they're not being salt, they're not being light, they're not keeping covenant, and so I am going to hold to my promise to, to wipe them off the face of the earth, essentially. And he allowed horrific hardship to, follow, to befall these people. But God is always bringing new things out of it. And one of the incredible new things is that these prophets who spoke and prophesied the exile also prophesied that the exile would not be the end of the story. 
And so what the people who were taken into exile discover is that the God of Jerusalem is also God in Susa. I actually wonder if the people who are writing the Bible, and this is just an I wonder, I, just, I wonder if the people who are writing the Bible were really truly monotheistic up until the point of the exile. Like, because you hear them say things like, Lord, you are greater than all the other gods. Like, smash the teeth of others. It's almost as though they're acknowledging, like, each nation and people has different gods. It's not until the exile, really, that you start getting the picture. It's like, oh, my gosh, our God isn't just the best God. He's the only God. And the people discover that, and they start seeing that this God is putting dreams in Nebuchadnezzar and in Cyrus and in Artaxerxes to move history for his good purpose. It's crazy. So Ezra is sent back uh, to reestablish community, to teach the Torah, to reestablish what is this people. And then Nehemiah is sent to rebuild the walls. Um, each one of these accounts, uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah kind of follows a similar uh, blueprint. You've got a, you've got like a, a, a Hebrew Jewish leader um, who, is, uh, who is called by a Persian pagan king to do a work for God, the, the Persian king resources that leader to go back and do this thing. The leader encounters opposition um, and uh, leads with faithfulness towards God. Um, but yet all three of the accounts end in kind of a strange anticlimax, which James will uh, kind of point to probably later on, which points to uh, future prophecies to be fulfilled and what the real need of our heart is. One last disclaimer before we read the text itself. Um, Nehemiah, you may be familiar with this, you may not be, but Nehemiah is often kind of held out as one of the Bible's leadership books. Leadership books are, are big money things. You know, there's a lot of money that goes into, that goes into leadership books. Uh, Joshua is sometimes held out as a leadership book. Nehemiah held out as a leadership book. Um, I want to really encourage you not to get sucked into that. The, Nehemiah was not written to be the Bible's seven habits of highly effective people, all right? It's really easy, and a lot of people do this. They go to the Bible, and they say, these are the things that I want to do. Bible, tell me how to do it. The Bible is not about you, all right? The Bible is not about you. It's about God and how he moves history. The Bible stands on its own, and it doesn't need us to prop it up. Do not go to this book and think that Nehemiah is a book about you and how you're going to rebuild the walls by, by doubling your profits in business next year. It's not about how you're going to rebuild the walls by establishing a new charter school that's going to change education in this part of the city. Now, there are principles there that you might want to make use of. Principles like Nehemiah surveyed the wall, Nehemiah, how he handled conflict, how he dealt with opposition, how he inspired his people. But it's not about you. This book isn't titled Nehemiah for you. It's just called Nehemiah. So it's about him. So anyway, now that I uh, got in your face, let's read the Bible. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the, in the month of Chisley. Uh, yep, Chisley. In the 20th year... As I was in Susa, the citadel, that's the capital, that Hanani, uh, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. 
They said to me, the remnant remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let... (coughs) Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though, uh, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who, de- who delight to fear your name and give success to the servant today and grant him success uh, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. First thing, Nehemiah hears about the state of Jerusalem. What does he hear? That the walls are torn down. That moves him, doesn't it? But here's my question. Why? Why would, why would this uh, move him? Nehemiah obviously was a person of ambition because he worked his way up into a nice place. He did want to change the world. He, had, he did have um, a desire for daring. He did have a desire for daring. Um, but why now? Why now? The fact that the walls were torn down is 50-year-old news. Nebuchadnezzar was the one that tore the walls down. What business does Nehemiah have being flattened by news that the walls have been flattened? I mean, think about it. He was, before he was born, the walls were torn down. He probably has not been alive with the walls of Jerusalem torn down. So is he reacting to to the news that the walls are torn down? No. Everybody knew that they were. What he's probably reacting to is that after Zerubbabel went, Zerubbabel sent back to Cyrus and said, hey, give us money, and this is in the Ezra account, give us money, king, to rebuild the walls. Cyrus, uh, Cyrus knocks down, um, it says Cyrus squelched the walls program with, quote, force and power. And what this meant is that Cyrus was okay to let the temple be rebuilt, but he would never let the people of Israel experience safety or kind of a place for themselves. He would let them have enough of a taste of what it would be like to be themselves, to be their own people, to be the people of God, but he would not give them enough so they could actually identify with anything. So it's probably the news that the Zerubbabel program has happened. Ezra has gone and has sent back and said, hey, give us money to build the walls. And Cyrus says, absolutely not. And what this means is that the the people of Jerusalem are now surrounded by a host of angry and hostile neighbors who will forever have a heyday with the city and any renewal or uh, Jewish cultural revival, it would constantly be squelched. And so this was bad news. But again, why did Nehemiah care? 
If he was so passionate, why didn't he return with Zerubbabel or Ezra? Both Zerubbabel and Ezra led massive processions of Jewish exiles from Susa and from the Persian Empire. Like even the, the, Cyrus and Artaxerxes sent out proclamations throughout the entire empire that said, if you are Jewish, you can go back to Jerusalem. Why didn't Nehemiah take that if he cared so much? Why didn't he care? Maybe it's because he had just assumed that it was somebody else's fight. Maybe uh, it's because he assumed uh, that he wasn't much of a Bible scholar, or maybe he wasn't a very good Jew at all. And we don't have any evidence that, that, uh, that, that Nehemiah prayed ever before this. I don't know, it's just a guess. Maybe he wasn't a very good Jew at all. Maybe he didn't think that he was the sort of man that God would use for his own name or glory. I mean, Ezra was a Torah scholar, and Zerubbabel, well, you've heard of him before, you just don't know it. Zerubbabel is one of Jesus' great-grandfathers. He's the son. Then, the, then there was Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had, Elia, who had Eliezer, who had Eliakim, Eliakim had Acre, who had Zadok, who had Jacob. Jacob was the father of Eliakim. You guys know that, right? The, the list of Matthew's begats, uh, which for me has become memorable through Andrew Peterson's work, um, my favorite singer-songwriter, uh, Zerubbabel was a direct descendant of David and a future and, and uh, dang it, what's it called? An ancestor of Jesus. Um, he's listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And so who is Nehemiah? Maybe Nehemiah thought that he was too young to take part in this, or maybe he thought he was too old to take part in this. My guess is that he was just too comfortable. You see, he says, now I was cupbearer to the king. I wonder if the reason that Nehemiah had never really cared about Jerusalem before was because he was just too comfortable. You see, we all want to dare greatly, to do great things. We have a desire to dare. None of you want to just live this normal life existence and die and be forgotten. We all, like we have this desire for transcendence. But I tell you what, uh, the, uh, the thing about comfort is that comfort complicates your calling. It always does. I mean, even sitting in here, you know, I, I, love, I love James. I love your church. You guys support Young Life in a phenomenal way. You're our largest church supporter in our metro area. And you're not a very big church. Yeah, but, but even this morning, it's like, yeah, but that other room is more comfortable. And that other room makes us look a little bit better. And I love that James got up here and was like, hey, you know, I've actually been to church in Cuba before, and this would be really awesome in Cuba. Isn't it funny how our comfort complicates our calling? See, the truth about daring is that our daring is rooted in our desperation. Um, Nehemiah, verse 11 it says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And he finishes by saying, I was cupbearer to the king. He had a really good job in Susa. But for whatever reason, for whatever reason, Nehemiah never really cared about Jerusalem before. Something pierces him where he realizes this is his fight. And maybe for you, you have looked at the events of our world and you've said, you know what? Racial issues are not my thing. 
Issues of sexuality are not my thing. Issues of family are not my thing. Issues of sanctity of life are not my thing. That's somebody else's fight. Nehemiah probably looked at Jerusalem and was like, you know what? Restoration and renewal of Jerusalem, that's somebody else's fight. Except for whatever reason, when Nehemiah heard the report from, what was it, his cousin, his friend, Hanani, one of his brothers, who even knows what that means, one of his brothers, when he hears this news, he has his, what I call his Popeye moment. You guys remember the cartoon Popeye? I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. I, I can't remember. I, I always thought it said I live in a garbage can, but I know that's not true. That's what we sang on the school bus. Bus 144. Um, but he has his Popeye moment. You know what happens basically in every, epi- in every episode of Popeye, right? There's Popeye and there's, there's his go- girlfriend who? Olive oil, right? Uh, Popeye, olive oil. And then there's Bruno. Right? And Bruno comes in and he terrifies olive oil and he beats up Popeye. And every episode, Popeye has a moment where he reaches this point where he says, That's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. And then he takes performance enhancing drugs and then <laughs> it's spinach. But I, I watched one of these episodes yesterday. It's freaky. Um, <laughs> uh, then he takes spinach. His muscles get really big, and he rallies, and he wins the day, and Olive Oil says, oh, Popeye. But he has his Popeye moment. Nehemiah's daring is tied directly. It is rooted in his desperation. I think that it's not until we encounter hopelessness that we get to encounter hope. When Nehemiah sees that there's a very real possibility that all of his culture, all that he is and was and came from, might not be any longer because of this problem of the walls, for whatever reason, that's his Popeye moment. You know, we have a really bad cultural understanding of hope. The truth is that in order to authentically hope, you have to deal with the very real possibility and probability that the thing that you're hoping for will not happen. And it's there that real hope happens. Hope that is not rooted in hopelessness, hope that's not rooted or has no eye for the consequences of what would happen if the hope was not achieved, is just called wishfulness. You know? It's just called wishfulness. I have a lot of incredibly dear friends who are single and would love to be in a godly relationship with somebody. And yet I, I've heard some of my friends say, and it, it breaks my heart, yeah, but I, I just need to kind of stop hoping for that because I just, because it might not happen. The truth is that the moment that you come to the place where you say it might not happen, that's where hope is born. Nehemiah is faced with that. See, we've got to become desperate about the things that are going on in the world. We've got to come, we gotta, and, and more than we've got to be desperate about the things that are coming, going on in the world, is that we've got to become desperate about God's glory as it pertains to the things that are going on in the world. Somebody's got to do something. Where's your Popeye moment in your life? Where's your Popeye moment? Where's your moment that for such a time as this, you were called Christ Point? I mean, do you, is it, do you think it's a coincidence that your church moved to Cox Mill while Cox Mill Road is being absolutely exploded with new people who are going to live here? 
oh yeah, God just happened to bring a church full of people who would love their neighbors to a place where he's going to bring a lot of neighbors. And do you know what's going on in those houses that are starting in the mid-400s to 700s? Broken lives. People who have everything and yet are profoundly disturbed by the fact that as much as they have, they still just want a little bit more. And that it's not enough. And kids who grow up in those houses, they're, they're going to be abandoned by their parents just like kids in inner cities are. Maybe for such a time as this, God would move Christ Point to Cox Mill High School. Maybe for such a time as this, you might get to engage in some of the key issues of the day. Maybe for such a time as this, you guys might to get, get, to, get to engage with some of the top percentage of, 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 of wealth creators and wealth sustainers that you might be able to maybe even get them to love Jesus and then use some of that resources for things of the kingdom. Can you imagine maybe if we were just able to tap a funnel into this part of Cabarrus County and then link it into East Charlotte, what could happen? What sort of things could happen? But maybe we could get desperate about that. Because if we want to dare greatly, if we want to have the life of, a, of daring greatly and fulfill that desire, or at least engage it, these things that God might be calling us to, we've got to get desperate. There is no daring apart from desperation. And I don't think that there's any hope apart from hopelessness. We don't want to just wish good things. Because we've got to realize, what could happen in 30 years if the church doesn't grow and sustain? Tell me what America is going to look like in 30 years if that doesn't happen. We have a window of time that God has given us. And it's not, this isn't just a call to go door to door and evangelize. I'm not trying to turn this into that. But we've got to be what God has called us to be. Salt and light in the middle of a dark and tasteless generation. Can we get desperate about that? Can we get desperate about God's glory? Can we get desperate about keeping uh, about, uh, about us really loving this word? Because if you want to dare greatly, your daring is going to be rooted in your desperation. But like this plant that is a limelight hydrangea, uh, uh, I'm an amateur landscaper. I love hydrangeas. Uh, in just a few months, if I keep this well-fed and impartial sun, um, it's going to explode with clusters of grape-like uh, white panicle hydrangeas, uh, I think it's panicles, um, and they're just going to overflow. It's going to be amazing in my backyard. I cannot wait. But if this tree and stem structure is our daring, this dirt is our desperation, and it is held by our definitions. The pot is the definitions. Our daring is rooted in our desperation, and both are held within our definition. Our definition of God. You see, Nehemiah spends the first part of his prayer by affirming who God is and who we are. In Young Life, when we teach kids to pray, a lot of times we use uh, the ACTS method of praying. A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You know, we've got to realize God is faithful and we are not. He is a covenant keeper. And the fun thing about going through Acts prayer is that when you start by adoring God and you really authentically adore God and you start to see God for who God is, you can't help but reflect that and see who you are, which leads you to confession. But then again, as we confess 
to a good and just God, we realize that we're forgiving, we're forgiven, which leads us to thanksgiving. Because of who he is, we give thanks to him. And because we have, we have seen how he has been faithful to us in the past, we've seen him prove his character as we're being thankful for that, then that makes us bold to, to ask in the future, supplication. We have to know the character of God as it's spelled out in this Bible and as it's affirmed in our experience. The character of God is not spelled out in our experience and affirmed by the Bible. It is spelled out by the Bible and affirmed by our experience. And a huge part of that is us leaning into the mysteries of a God that's bigger than we can wrap our mind around. You know, if you've ever had anybody ask you, well, like, explain this about God. And you're like, man, I don't think I can explain that about God. That's, that's crazy. Maybe God's, and then they kind of come back and they're like, see, that's why I don't believe in God is because you can't explain that. That's garbage. If anybody can explain everything about God, chances are they made that God up. I can tell you everything about the Legos that I build with my kids because I made them. I can tell you where the trap doors are. I can tell you where we used a, a, a different color block because it was going to be hidden. We couldn't find the right one because it's probably under a bed somewhere or in a vacuum cleaner. But we have to lean into the, to the mysteries, the fact that God is sovereign, <laughs> that God is powerful, that God is, is personal. To lean into the character, our definition of God. We also have to lean into our definition of reality. Andrew Peterson puts it really succinctly. The world was good. The world is fallen. The world will be redeemed. The world is good. The world is fallen. The world will be redeemed. Things like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God is God and, and we're not. The Bible is God's word and is Every bit of it is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Like these definitions of reality that we have. This will kind of hold our desperation. Because look, if desperation exists outside of our definitions, then we can let those things go. But inside of our definitions, the things that we really believe about God, about reality, and about ourselves, this, this is the pot that kind of holds all of our daring in it. And then finally, it, the definition of our role. You know, Nehemiah chapter 2, which I'm going to kind of do half of, and I'm, uh, I'm running out of time here. Actually, I have run out of time. Uh, Nehemiah goes before Artaxerxes. He's the cupbearer to the king. He's been fasting and praying for four months. And Artaxerxes, and he says, Lord, incline this man's ear to me. You know? And then he's giving the king wine, and the king looks at him and says, hey, what's up with you? And, and, and Nehemiah's kind of taken back. <laughs> In chapter 2, he's taken back, and he's like, uh, and so this is his answer. He says, what? the king says, um, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. So Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. So he says, I said to the king, in verse 3, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And it goes on to say at the end of that, in, uh, at the end of verse 11, I just tried to scroll up on my Bible because I've got my iPad over here. It's funny. It says, and the king granted me what I asked. 
for the good, gracious hand of my God was upon me. We've got to know our definition of our role. If you've got a desire to be daring and it's rooted in desperation and you've got these definitions, what about your role in it? Look, I tell you, man, God does not need you to win Cox Mill Road to himself. But do you want to be a part of that? God doesn't need you to empty the foster system in the greater Charlotte area. Do you want to be a part of that? God doesn't need you to care for AIDS victims. God doesn't need you to engage in the racial conflicts in our city. But do you want to be a part of that? You know, if God came to you and answered all of your prayers for ministry, for impact, for your good and beautiful life, if God came to you and answered all of your prayers for ministry, for impact, for your good and beautiful life, would you even know? Have you even taken time to define it? Do you even know where, <laughs> what you're desperate about? I hope a lot of you do. But I got to tell you, honestly, if God came to me and answered all of my prayers for Cox Mill High School, I'm not sure I would know. Because I haven't been praying very specifically. You know, if God answered all my prayers for my kids, how, like, would I know beyond them saying, hey, Dad, I just want you to know I gave my life to Jesus. Would I know beyond that? See, we don't have a very good definition of our role in God's renewing and re restoring and redemption in this world. Nehemiah was faced with something that I was faced with when I was 10 years old. I, I went for my birthday to Orioles Spring Training, Baltimore Orioles Spring Training in, uh, in Sarasota, Florida. I'm a lifelong Orioles fan, which we're engaging in a tough decade right now. Um, but I had these baseballs, and I got to run around spring training and talk to my heroes and I got to run up to them with these baseballs. And I, would, and I, got, I had one ball that was specifically for Cal Ripken Jr. because he was my hero. But I had another baseball that I just wanted everybody to sign. And, uh, and I would run around with this baseball and I would kind of run up to guys. And a bunch of them, you know, would see it come in and they'd be like, all right, here's a kid. Sign it. Like, not even talk to me. But I ran up to number 11, Jeffrey Hammond. Jeffrey Hammond was a really good ball player. He's probably not going to be remembered. Um, but I ran up to Jeffrey Hammonds, number 11, and he was this super cool guy. It was when Ken Griffey Jr. was wearing his hat backwards, and Jeffrey Hammonds wore his hat backwards too, and that was awesome. And I run up to Jeffrey Hammonds, and I've got my baseball, and he was like the second or third person that I got. And I ran over to him, and I held my baseball up, and he looked down at me, and then he, and then he kind of he smiled to himself, and he turned back around. He was younger in the league. And he turned back around, and I was like, okay, so... I got really bold, and I, I pulled on his jersey, and I pulled on his, on his jersey, and he turned around smiling, and he looked at me, and he said, and he looked at my baseball, and he looked at me, and he goes, so uh, what do you want, kid? <laughs> and like, it froze me. <laughs> he said, what do you want, kid? And I was like, uh, a hot dog? Uh, no, <laughs> I, I want, can I have your autograph? And he said, well, why didn't you say so? And he took the ball and he signed it, Jeffrey Hammonds, and he gave it back to me. But I'll, I'll never forget that. Because quite honestly, when it comes to what we want to dare to do out of our desperation and our definitions of reality, and we come up and we pull on God's sleeve and we're like, God, please, God, please, God, please. The king turned around to Nehemiah and he said, so what are you requesting? 
do you even know? The story's going to go on. I don't get to tell it to you. But, um, but I just want you to know, what is it that you're desperate about? That you would dare to overcome comfort and leave for? And how have you defined it? Nehemiah knew. And that's how he got wrapped up in this crazy story that got written down and remembered. So what do you want, kid? Jesus, thank you so much uh, for your word. Uh, Thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for this amazing congregation. God, for this school. Lord, I thank you for this uh, church and all that they're doing to press back the darkness. Um, Lord, would you please make them desperate for you. In Jesus' name, amen.